You can open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. I don't remember where I read this, but I read recently that a Dutchman and an American were discussing their various flags. And the Dutchman said, our flag, the, 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 Nether, uh, the flag of the Netherlands, our flag is symbolic of our taxes. We get red when we talk about them, white when we get our tax bills, and blue after we pay them. And the American nodded along and said, it's the same for us, but we see stars too. <laughs> so in our text this morning, we, Jesus is in a dispute with the religious leaders, and Jesus gives instruction to actually, you know, we joke about taxes, but to some of the most pressing questions of our day. Should we obey the government and pay our taxes? Is human government an institution that we can ignore as those who recognize God is the one with sole authority? What if the government is a pagan government? What if they are even involved in idol worship? This is a topic that arises as the Jewish leadership seeks to undermine Jesus. So they approach him, as we know, the, the context of the end of 19, all of chapter 20, the beginning of chapter 21 is seeking to undermine Christ. And they've tried different ways. And in our text this morning, they think if we can get him talking about politics, then we can really get him in trouble. All right, so it's in the midst of this conflict that we learn two things this morning about governing authority. The first is this, human government is a legitimate institution. We'll begin there in verse 19 to set up the, the confrontation here. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, and at that, very, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You know, we, we ended in verse 19 last week, but it sort of is a, is a transitionary verse to this next section. It sort of sets up our text. They understood that the previous parable was told about them. The parable about God's judgment falling on the leadership and the blessings of the gospel going to the Gentiles. So this just further enraged them. They wanted, to kill the gent they wanted to kill Jesus all the more. But they are afraid of the crowd. They're afraid of the people who are, are listening to Jesus because they believe that John the Baptist is a legit prophet. And so the scribes and the chief priests, they think, you know what the problem is? You know why we can't entrap Jesus? It's because He knows that we hate Him. He knows that we are trying to entrap Him. And so they decide if we can send spies, then they'll be able to pretend like they're good and they'll be able to actually entrap Jesus. What faulty thinking they have about Christ. If they can just send somebody that can flatter Him a little bit. So they send these guys and our text tells us that they pretend to be sincere. They use flattery to try to soften Jesus up and to take his guard down. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about flattery, and none of it is good, right? One of the passages that I think actually fits our parable quite well is Proverbs 
it warns, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his own feet. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his own feet. Well, we see these religious, uh, these spies come in. They think they can flatter Jesus, and what are they doing? They're setting their own trap. And look there, you see there in verse 21, the, the words that they use that, that might that they think can flatter Christ. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They approach him with the title of teacher, which would be a, a title of respect. They say that his teaching is true, it's, or, or you might say it's straight, it's, it's accurate. They say you don't pander to the opinion of man, and you always represent what God says. They think they can soften Christ up in this way. You know, they're hoping, the text told us, to, to turn him over to the governor, right? They're, they're hoping to soften him up by saying, we know that you won't pander to somebody like Caesar when we ask you this question about what we should do with our taxes. right? Ironically, though they are deceitful, though they are completely insincere, they, they utter truth. Right? Though they're trying to flatter Jesus, what they say is true. Jesus is uh, one of absolute integrity. He does always teach truth and the way of God. And he is not afraid of what people think of him or what they can do to him. Their words of flattery are actually words of truth. And so thinking that their, their flattery has had its effect, they lay their trap there in verse 22 by asking, is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? In essence, they're asking, should God's people be exempt from paying taxes to Rome. Now that question may seem innocent to us, but this was a hot topic in Israel. This was often debated. The tribute that's mentioned here is a reference to a tax paid to the hated Roman government. It was above and beyond what even the what the tax collectors would collect kind of on the road. It was up to 30 or 40 percent of their income. And this was particularly a sore spot for Israel. We know we joked about how we, we hate giving away money for our taxes. But this was particularly a sore spot for Israel because it reminded them of their subjugation to Rome. In fact, there were some in Israel who believed that paying taxes to Rome conceded that Caesar was Lord instead of the one true God. And they, they, they decided in their minds that then to pay taxes was to engage in idol worship. Well, for those who hold that, held that position, political revolt became the only faithful option, right, for those who held to God's universal reign. So with that context, right, then you can see why they asked the question and why they think they can tra uh, trap Jesus in this either-or question. If Jesus sides with, with the viewpoint that it is idolatry and it is supporting a, a, a pagan, idolatrous government to pay taxes, then they will be able to turn him over to Caesar. They will be able to have him arrested and potentially put to death. He would quickly be called an insurrectionist, 
the Roman government would look at the crowd that's currently listening to Jesus, and the ones who want Jesus dead can easily say, look at his following and look at his teaching. You better put this rebellion down. And he would be squashed, and he would be killed, and the religious leaders would get what they wanted. However, if Jesus says publicly that taxes should be paid, then he can be accused of preferring uh, Caesar's claim to deity and and maybe be accused of saying he, he believes in multiple gods, not just the one true God of Israel. And if they could pin that on him, then he's a false prophet. And keep in mind, you know, there's lots of uh, Jews who viewed the Messiah's coming as like a political revolt. So if he kind of, if he says you should pay your taxes, man, those who thought Jesus was coming primarily to overthrow Rome, well, they're going to back off of him. So it feels like it, it feels like they have him trapped. Right? But Jesus knows that they are deceitful. You can't trick Jesus. You can't fool him. We've said this before, it bears repeating, Jesus loves to help the humble, but he will expose the fraudulent. He loves to help the humble, but he will expose the fraudulent spies. And he does so by calling for a coin called a denarius. And I think there's some humor in the text where actually these people who are semi-implying that it's idolatry to have a coin that has Caesar's image stamped on it and you shouldn't be using this coin because, or, and you shouldn't be paying tax with this coin. And Jesus says, someone give me a denarius. And they say, oh, I've got one right here. And they produce one. On this denarius... You know, they've actually found some throughout history that are still in existence, and it it was. It was stamped with the image of Tiberius Caesar, and it said this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. There's idolatry even stamped onto the thing. The other side was a picture of his mother portrayed as a goddess and labeled a high priest. It's not hard to see why this would be so offensive to the Jewish people who are occupied by Roman authority. It is an example of Roman idolatry. In fact, when Jesus says whose likeness is stamped on it, it's actually the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to talk about they, they, they traded in worship of creation for idols, icons. The idolatrous images that were worshipped. Therefore, some ascertain that it's idolatrous to have money with Caesar's image and therefore wrong to pay taxes to that guy who thinks he's a little G God. And so they bring this before Jesus and you can imagine them licking their chops a a bit and thinking, man, Jesus asks whose likeness is on this coin. They probably think they have him. He's going to follow it up by saying this likeness is an affront to God and therefore you shouldn't pay the taxes. They think they've got him. And Jesus is too wise. He says, well, whose whose image is on it? They say Caesar's. If Caesar's image is stamped on it, then pay it back to him. But pay to God the things that are God's. Render unto God the things that are God's. Let's start with the first part. Pay the tax to the pagan government, he says. Now, it's tempting to want to jump immediately to what that means for us, and we'll, we'll get there. But we should keep in mind the bigger picture. 
The point of this whole section is that the religious leaders are trying to entrap Jesus and they're coming up short. They fail again here. With Jesus' answer, he avoids walking into the trap that they have set. Right? He does not deny God's overarching supreme rule and authority. Neither does he deny that Caesar has some authority in this life. It's been given to him, but he has some authority in this life. And he owns some things. And he has a right to collect some taxes. So one thing that we see in this text as it pertains to how we think about government is that Caesar has authority in in, in certain spheres. In other words, you might say it this way, government is a legitimate institution. Jesus here actually legitimizes the the place and role of government. He tells these religious Jews, we do have a duty to the state, even though the state rests under God's authority. In fact, that word render there, as in render to Caesar, it carries the idea of meeting an obligation. You have an obligation. There's a civic debt that governments may charge and followers of Jesus ought to pay it. The Greek word, you know, tribute is, again, used elsewhere for just pay your taxes or your taxes. So the government then is one institution given to men, I think along others, the family and the church, and believers are subject to the authorities that God has placed over us. Believers are subject to the authorities that God has placed over us. Think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What does Peter say? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. So Christians of all people ought to be those who understand that authority is a good gift given to us by God, though in this sinful world, we'll see in a minute, it's oftentimes corrupted and abused and used wrongly. As Christians, we don't view submission as a bad word, right? In our culture, submission is, is, is a bad word because it means I'm weaker than you and you're stronger than me and I don't like that, right? I've joked before that I was, was like in judo as a kid and judo, you just like, I thought you were just like throwing people around and I went to my first match. I'd been in judo like six weeks I don't know what I'm doing. I go in this match, I get thrown to the ground. All of a sudden, I'm getting choked out. It's turned into like a jujitsu match or something. And I got to tap out, right? I have to submit. And it was humiliating. And it's, it's admitting that I've, I've lost the fight, right? I do have three bronze judo medals, and I never won a match. There's only, th- there's only three people in my weight class. 
But it feels like that, right? That word submission, it just feels like, oh, it, it means you're better than me. It means you're superior to me. Well, the Bible, submission is bringing yourself willingly under the authority of another. It's not about who, who has a greater degree of the image of God, a greater degree of the inheritance of God. The, the Bible is really clear that we are all on equal ground before the Lord. But there are places where we willingly bring ourselves under submission to authority. And as Christians, we want to cultivate a willingness to do that. Right? Whether it be children to parents. Children, it's, God has given a good authority in your life as parents. Whether it be children to parents, churches to elders, right? Hebrews 13, obey your elders. And again, we, we, we try to be careful with that, right? If, if, if that's the call for the church, then as elders, we want to be careful not to place over you unbiblical expectations. Our authority comes from the Word of God. We want to we cultivate a willingness to bring ourselves under proper authority that God has established. And that means people to government, and ultimately it means everyone to Christ. Everyone to Christ. And that's where Jesus goes next. Human government, he says, is a legitimate institution because there is no, there is no authority, there is no government except from God. And those governments that exist, exist because God has placed them there. So they rest under his final authority. Right? So we said Jesus teaches in saying, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that human government is a legitimate institution. But when he says, render unto God the things that are God's, we see that human government is a limited institution. It's a limited institution. Look there at the end of verse 25. Well, I'll read from 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So Jesus uses this, this logic. If Caesar's image is stamped on that coin then he has some authority to decide how that coin is used or how that coin is taxed. Right? But Jesus uses that same image to make a more important point. Those things that are stamped with God's image then belong to him. Right? If the coin is stamped with Tiberius' image, render that to him. But then... By default, anything stamped with the image of God isn't to be rendered unto Him. We might ask, well, where then is God's likeness impressed upon so that we might know what we should render to God? Well, it's on every person. The likeness of God has been pressed on every person. Every single person is made in the image of, of God. Right? And there's a... In 1857, there was the Dred Scott versus Sanford case where Dred Scott sued for his right to be a free man. And his argument was actually that, you know, I've actually gone to a free state, and if you've, if you've been free before, you shouldn't be able to be brought back under slavery. I cannot be 
re-enslaved in a slave state if I've experienced freedom in a free state. That was his argument before the Supreme Court. The law was actually on his side. But ashamedly, in a 7-2 vote, the Supreme Court decided at that time that African Americans were not American citizens. There were only two dissenting votes. One of them was John McClain, not diehard John McClain. The Honorable John McClain. And you know what he said, interestingly? He didn't say, you know, Dred's, he should be free because he lived in a free state and he's come to a slave state. He should be free, he said, because a slave is not mere chattel. He bears the impress of his maker. That's why he said he should be free. And he is destined for an endless existence. He's saying he should be free because he's an, he's an image bearer. And that's what we're saying here. All people everywhere are made in the image of God. Even Tiberius Caesar, the one who thought he was a god, bears the impress of his maker and owes his allegiance to the Lord above all else. Above all else. You and I are here this morning and our our obedience, our submission to government is limited. We'll see ways in which it's limited in a minute. One way it's limited is we're only, sub, we're only called to submit to our own government. Belize has no authority over you. Romania has no authority over you. I think Romania is a country. I don't know. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. But No one, though, we can escape the authority of some of these other governments. But no one can escape the, the authority of God. No one can escape their need to submit to Him, their obligation to submit to Him because they bear His likeness. We are all under His authority. And He has used His power, the Bible says, to give good gifts to men. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right? In, our, in our world, we think rain is bad news. We use that verse wrongly sometimes and say, oh, you're suffering, but you're... You're righteous. Well, the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. Really, rain is a good thing if you're living in Israel. God has given good gifts to the just and the unjust. He's given good gifts to wicked and to righteous alike. Even those who give Him no honor, He has demonstrated His goodness to them. In fact, none of us have come into this world recognizing the goodness of God's authority. None of us were born following and honoring the Lord and His, His authority in our lives. We all, due to the pervasiveness of sin, the wickedness of our hearts, the rebellion that dwells in our hearts, we sought to overthrow His authority in our lives. We sought to live our little individual lives as they went contrary to what God had called us to do. We wanted to obey the desires of our heart regardless of what God said. That's it. This is this reality that we rebelled against this authority, every one of us. That's the reason Jesus is in Jerusalem and headed for the cross. To deal with our rebellion, to deal with our sin once and for all, and to make a way for us through His death on the cross to be brought back into right relationship with God or to be reconciled to God. 
that we might have our eyes open by the Spirit of God, that, that God is not some tyrannical ruler to be undermined and worked around, but he, His authority is good, and He's a good and, and a kind God. And we see Him as the glorious, all-sufficient Lord of the earth, and we see that He sent His Son to live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, be resurrected, demonstrating His authority over sin and death, and we see His glory, and we're drawn to Him by the Spirit of God, and we embrace Him by faith, and we submit our lives to Him. And we, want to, we, we then want to, we desire to live underneath His authority because we recognize it as a good authority, because He's a good and a kind God. And that's only possible in Christ. Right, We might say it this way, it is only in Christ that we might render unto God the things that are God's. It's only in Christ that someone who's made in the image of God might truly serve Him and might truly bring themselves under His authority. So we all have an ultimate allegiance to the Lord, and that by default limits the authority of human government. So Jesus, we saw, legitimizes government authority. He legitimizes taxation. But at the same time, he relativizes the reach of human government and authority. Since that authority is derived from God, it is, it is important, but it's not ultimate. Okay, And there's a place for us as God's people to say something is important, but it's not ultimate. Right? It's not the ultimate authority, but it, it doesn't mean it's not an important authority. It's important because Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And it's limited because in Acts 5.29, the apostles say, we must obey God rather than man. Human authority is important because Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And it's limited because we must obey God rather than man. Caesar's rules under God's rule, his authority is not unlimited. It is, in fact, quite limited. So we might ask, and just kind of practically speaking, when is it right to resist the authority of the government? All right, if we're going to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and we're going to render unto God the things that are God's. We should ask that question. When is it right to resist the authority of government? We'll spend some time kind of thinking about the tension between render unto, unto Caesar. You think I would be able to say that right one time in the sermon. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and we must obey God rather than man. There's some tension there. right? How do we resolve this tension? How do we, a, a, a better question might be, how do we please God in this? Right, that's our goal as believers. We want to please God. Our goal is not a comfortable life. It's not a, life, it's not a tax-free life. Our goal is a life that pleases God. So how should we as Christians live in a secular government? I, I wrote down four statements in your notes. I I almost hesitated to even type them out because they need some explanation. Each one of them needs some explanation. And I'll try, to, I'll try to offer that. One is a point we've made before. We glorify God when we submit to and honor the authority He has placed over us. Right? The Bible standard is actually greater than just 
begrudging submission. We actually, we actually honor those authorities that he has placed over us. Think about a text like Titus 3, 1 and 2. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He goes on, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready for every good work. Well, what does that look like? Not speaking evil, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy to all people. You know, that word submission, when we bring ourselves under the authority of someone and we're submitting to them, it implies that there's going to be times where we have to do things we don't want to do. Right? It, the, the very word submission implies that you're, not, you're going to be pushed a little bit in places. Things you would rather not do if it were up to you. Right? To submit, and this in Titus 3 and in other places, it's nearly synonymous with obey. To obey. Well, just like a kid has to obey his parents, and there's times where the kid's like, I don't want to do that. But they should. And lust, as we'll see, the parents are asking them to sin in some way. Another thing this text, Titus 3, specifically challenges us and challenges me is, do your words honor those who are in authority? Do your words honor those who are in authority? As you think about the way you talk about governing rulers in our city, in our state, in our country, would you, would you say that it's fair, and again, this, is, this can be a convicting question for, for many of us, would you say it's fair that you avoid quarreling and you show perfect courtesy to all people? See, I'll, I believe that courage is not rudeness, right? We've, we've gotten mixed up where we think being rude means you're, you're courageous. Being courageous means honoring God under pressure. Honoring God under pressure. Right? I could imagine somebody in Israel, one of the zealots, right, saying, I'm not going to give a red cent to those pagan, idolatrous Roman rulers who have overrun God's people and they are occupying the land of Israel and they are engaged in all kinds of immorality. I'm not giving them one penny. And everybody would clap for that man and say, How courageous. And he's running against the teaching of Jesus. You'd say, that's the sort of courage we need today. It might have sounded like courage, right? If we're not discerning, it might have sounded like faithfulness. But it's actually contrary to the words of Jesus. So what's courage? It's doing what Jesus says. When the pressure's turned up, that's courage. All right, we glorify God when we submit to and honor the authority He has placed over us. Um, honoring God means not, well, not refusing the state's right to function. Right? Because He has put that government into place. And if God has put that government in place, then failing to properly, and we'll define properly in a minute, failing to properly submit to authority is failing to properly submit to God. Failing to properly submit to authority is failing to properly submit to God. 
I think that Romans 13 kind of brings these two ideas together. God instituted government, so failing to properly submit to what God puts in place is ultimately failing to submit to Him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 1 to 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Why would we be subject to governing authorities? For there is no authority except from God. There's no one who has any authority whatsoever. This is what Jesus will tell the Roman authorities. You don't have any authority that has not been given to you. You can't do anything that God has not permitted you to do. So for, those, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist. Those what? Those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. All right, that's the first statement. We glorify God when we submit to and honor the authority He has placed over us. I think it's, I think it's interesting, before we move to that second point, that when Paul talks about praying for those who are in authority, his, his real goal in, in 1 and 2 Timothy, I'm just riffing now, so just bear with me, but... Um, he says it's to live a peaceable and quiet life. Paul's hope is that he can just preach the gospel and live for Christ and be left alone. And he's like, I just want to live a peaceable and quiet life. That's why I'm praying for my rulers and my authorities. All right, number two. We have a duty to disobey the government when compelled to by them to disobey God. Right? We glorify God when we exercise this, this duty to disobey the government when compelled by them to sin against God. We'd say the same thing for, for wives who are living in submission to their husbands. We'd say the same thing for children who are living in submission to their parents. Your ultimate authority is God. Allow no one to compel you to sin against God in the name of submitting to their limited sphere of authority. So honoring God means not bowing the knee to government when they compel us to either stop doing something that God tells us to do or to do something that God tells us not to do. The idea is that we obey as long as we can. We understand our duty to human government, but we have an even greater duty to God. Consider one example from the Old Testament. There's lots of examples. Actually, if you read your Old Testament with this in mind, you'll come up with lots of examples in which God is honored, and honoring God means defying the government. Right? One example is when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and specifically recruited some sharp young men to come into his kingdom, and, and maybe he can put them through re-education training, and maybe they can be useful in his palace. Right? Young men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I know some of you are saying, that's their pagan name, use it, whatever. Daniel uses both, so I'm going to use those. He's going to bring them in and re-educate them. Now during this time, you've got these young, young men, and Nebuchadnezzar has this en enormous image of himself erected. A huge golden statue in his own image. And this is the decree, the decree that came down from the government. The government that's meant to serve people and protect people and punish wickedness and reward righteousness. This is the decree, the decree that came down. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, 
that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And here's the threat. This command even comes with a threat. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So you can see how the government can compel people, even with a threat of punishment, to do things that are sinful things. As faithful Israelites who knew the law and knew the laws against idolatry, they could not fall and bow before this image. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace. By God's grace, He protected them. But notice that their resistance, their resistance to the government was in light of a law that was unjust and it was immoral. It was not just what we might call burdensome or inconvenient. Right? It was not just burdensome, it was just not just inconvenient. But when the government either forbids what God has called us to do or commands us to do something that God has told us we can't do, we must obey God rather than men. So stop preaching Christ. We must resist. Right? Affirm sinful lifestyles. Right? We must resist. 1 Timothy 2. Oh, I mentioned that. The goal of praying for the government and its officials is to live a peaceable and quiet life. So we have a right to disobey the government when they seek authority. Oh, this is number three. We have a right to disobey the government when they seek authority in the spiritual life of the church or family, right? We said there's other institutions, which is not a domain in which they have authority. Okay, don't forget the rule. The rule is submit to the governing authorities because God has placed them there. Right? Submit to governing authorities because God has placed them there. Don't use the exception to the rule to fervently try to break the rule. All right, that's what I'm saying. But even reformers like John Calvin spoke of unlawful laws. Right? Unlawful laws. Those, again, are not laws that are simply inconvenient or burdensome. Right? There are laws that infringe on the spiritual things God has ordered in His church, or we might say even in the family. So I'll give a practical example, and then I'll try to demonstrate this from the Scriptures. Right? If our governor thought, you know, divorce is getting out of hand in our state. Divorce rates are up. And she says, I'm going to compel all the churches to preach a sermon series on divorce in October. Actually, rule number two wouldn't apply because we would not be sinning by preaching a sermon series on divorce in October. Right? But I would say we, we would not be sinning if we said, actually, you don't have the right to tell us what we're going to preach when we gather as God's people. So I don't believe we have an obligation to submit to human government's reach when it reaches into those spiritual aspects of the church. Right? Zoning laws, that's a, that's a different world. 
right? We would submit to the government there. But can we demonstrate this from Scripture, where human government is resisted even when a Christian is not directly compelled to sin? Right? Can we demonstrate from Scripture that human government is resisted, it's sort of limited, even when someone's not compelled to sin? Well, I don't know whether we have time to turn here, but Peter was arrested by King Herod in Acts 12. Right? The king who has authority arrests Peter. He was bound, placed between two soldiers, and guarded by centuries who were government officials. So you've got the king, you've got soldiers, you've got centuries. But what happened? He was busted loose by an angel. Now, generally, we would not encourage a jailbreak, right? Generally, we would say, if, you're, if you've been arrested and you've been convicted, you ought to submit to the government. We would view a jailbreak as a breach of submission to the governing authorities and the laws that have been passed in that land, right? But Peter was arrested under what Calvin would call an unlawful law, an unlawful law that pro- prohibited him from preaching the gospel and establishing the church. So he continued preaching. He walked out of that jail, defied King Herod. It wouldn't have been sinful for Peter to remain in the cell. Right? He could have, he could have remained there. But he walked out. He continued preaching, not recognizing King's Her- King Herod's use of authority there to be valid. Okay, number four. And this is where I, I need to be, try to be really careful here. In super rare cases, all right, I left the word super even in your notes. In super rare cases, when given the opportunity to directly protect an innocent life, or in your notes it should say, or to preach eternal life, we have a, du- a duty to do so, and that might even entail deceiving the government. It might actually entail deceiving the government. Okay, that sounds crazy. That's why I say I was almost like ready to not print that on the notes. Let me, let me explain. Let me give a biblical example and then maybe one from history. Exodus 1 opens with Israel in bondage, in bondage to Egypt. Right? They've been brought there. There's a new Pharaoh that came up that does not recognize Joseph. Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill any Jewish male child. Right? Kill all the sons. But, the, but Exodus 1 actually says these midwives, they feared the Lord and they would not obey. Right? They feared the Lord and they would not obey. And that would be actually consistent with, with one of the points we made earlier, that if you're compelled to sin, don't do it. Right? But then they actually go a little bit further. It's true, they did not do as they were commanded. But when they were pressed as to why they weren't killing the children, the male children, they actually deceived Pharaoh by saying, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. It's very unlikely that the Israelites had children a lot faster than the Egyptian women. It's possible that they had sort of, it's possible, but the Scripture doesn't tell us, 
that maybe they had sort of spread the word like, hey, don't call us until it's too late. Right? We can't get there in time. But either way, they're deceiving Pharaoh. And the, and the very next verse says, so uh, God de- dwelt well with the midwives. God uh, dealt well with the midwives. The women didn't actually say, I can't kill the baby and walk away. They actively sought to keep the babies alive, even if it meant deceiving Pharaoh. You can see why I said I need to be careful here. If you want to think more about this, you might read about Rahab's hiding of the spies and the deceiving of the king. And that actually it it seems like in being loyal to God, she deceived the king. Seems as if she's commended for it in Hebrews 11. Okay, a quick historical example. The Nazis burst through the door and say, are you hiding any Jews in your home? It was actually good and right to deceive the Nazis. Now, if you could avoid telling a full-fledged lie, if there was a better way you found to deceive them, whether it was by time and they sneak out the back, I don't know. But I do know this. Submission to government didn't say, I cannot, I cannot otherwise you know, do anything other than tell you where they're at. Go get them and put them in the gas chamber. Right now, the biblical examples we gave, as well as the historical example, have something in common. And I want to make this clear. The deception directly led to the saving of innocent lives. Directly led to that. Okay, And and I put in your notes too. Or maybe to the preaching of eternal life. And here's what I mean. Sometimes missionaries have to go undercover. And they have to have a job. And they might say, are you here as a missionary? And they might deceive the government, I think justifiably so, say, no, I'm here to run communications for whatever, this company. Anyways, I say the word directly save innocent lives or directly lead to the preaching of eternal life for a reason. The key word is directly. I think we are really stretching the text and we are, we are disobeying God when we, when we begin to find kind of convoluted connections and refuse to submit to the government or refuse to pay taxes because the money we pay may or may not be used some way we disagree with. Jesus did not say, don't render unto Caesar because he will use that money to build another statue of himself and pagans will have to worship that. And he will violently expand the Roman Empire, so therefore don't pay your taxes. That sort of burden did not fall on the shoulders of Jesus' hearers. Again, this is, this is rare, right? So again, don't use the exceptions to the rule to just think there is no rule. I wanted to give a full picture of how God's authority overrules and limits man's authority. Our ultimate authority we know is found in God. We must remain loyal to Him at all times while remaining loyal to governing authorities when we can. Right? We remain loyal to God at all times while remaining loyal to governing authorities when we can. 
because our hope is not in this world. Right? There's two, I was telling Gary this morning, there's two ways we can go really wrong on this. Right? We can say either government is not a legitimate institution, or we can say government is going to give us paradise, it's going to resolve all our biggest problems. Right? I figured in South Dakota we needed to hear one more than the other. Right? But our hope is not in the kingdom of God. Our hope is not in the kingdom of God. So Jesus masterfully avoids the trap and speaks true and noble things about the role of government existing under God's authority. Just a few decades before this confrontation with Jesus, there was a man, another man from Galilee. His name was Judas, not Judas Iscariot, not any other Judas that you might think of in the life of Jesus. There was a man named Jesus. He took a stand and he rebelled against Rome because he would not pay his taxes to the pagan government. He's one of those zealots. He took the stand. I will not pay. I will not be a part. His rebellion was put down and his followers were scattered and his movement died out. Right? And the spies thought that perhaps Jesus, another man from Galilee, the one who is rumored to be the heir of King David, could be exposed as a rebel against Rome, and like Judas's rebellion, maybe they'll put him down. What's interesting is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, as the apostles were arrested and they stood before the Jewish council, a wise Pharisee named Gamaliel reminded the group of Judas. Remember Judas 20, 30 years ago? He said this in Acts 5. Answering the question, how will, we be, how will we be able to know if Jesus is different than Judas? He said, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. Judas's rebellion it failed, and his group was scattered. And Gamaliel says, you know what, if this Jesus, if he really resurrected from the grave, just leave these guys alone. If he's dead, their, their thing will it'll scatter. They'll, they'll just die out. But if, but if it's for real, and you oppose them, you might be found opposing God. And so as we think about our hope being the kingdom of God and not our own kingdom, I just wanted to read that passage and remind us that even our presence here this morning at Southern Hills Bible Church in Custer, South Dakota, preaching the same gospel that the apostles went out and preached, testifies that the kingdom of God is not of man, but from God. His kingdom will never fail. And so we ought to submit ourselves to him above all else. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you for the joy we have in him. Lord, may we be God-honoring, God-pleasing citizens underneath our overarching goal to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.